Good morning. <clears throat> love is patient. Love is kind. Love never fails. That banner was hanging there 19 years and nine months ago. As Zoe's godmother from that lectern, it wasn't widescreen then, it was the old lectern that we had, read 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 to 13, and Zoe and I were married standing right where I'm standing now. And I have been testing her patience ever since. 7,205 days Zoe has been married to me, and I have failed her and disappointed her on most of them. But her love has never failed. So if you want any clarification after the sermon this morning, don't seek me out. Seek Zoe out. You see, I am, and this, this will surprise you, but I am very difficult to live with. I have a myriad of ways that I disappoint Zoe, but the one that happens most regularly, and I've been counting it this week, and I've done it at least a dozen times this week, is that I am useless at looking for things. Over those 7,205 days, Zoe hasn't found much purpose for me, but every so often she's busy downstairs doing something, and she needs, say, her glasses. So she says, dearest, she says, now there are, there are four tiers in my house that I can be named by. There's Dan, that means everything is copacetic, I'm clear, everything is good. There is Daniel, that's a sort of shot across the bow, it's a warning note, it just means that I should be prepared. There's dearest, and then if you ever hear the word darling in our house, run, run like the wind and don't look back. I am on dearest. I'm one step from darling, so I pay attention. Dearest, she says, could you pop upstairs and get my glasses? They are, and she's specific because she knows my failings, on my bedside table. Now, I'm a man. Men are very task-oriented. I am happy to oblige. I rush upstairs, and this is where my problems start. There are many ways that this quest could end, None of them involve Zoe getting her glasses. The main ways I fail are this. First of all, I get distracted. I start looking for something, and isn't it just amazing, the fascinating things you can find when you're looking for something else. Our bedroom becomes a treasure trove of sort of half-read books, magazines, battery chargers that I wonder if I've still got the phones for, half-eaten sandwiches. It's brilliant. All these things crop up when I'm looking for something else. I get distracted. And often it can take me hours to, well, if I ever remember. See, that's my second problem. I'll get so distracted I forget what I'm looking for. Or in fact, sometimes I just get upstairs and then forget what I'm looking for. In fact, being a man, sometimes I forget what I'm looking for before Zoe's even finished asking me because I just forget to listen. You see, men are not just bad at reading instructions. We don't listen to them either. We're too busy thinking about rushing upstairs and being useful. And then I get there and I think, ah. And then I have to work backwards. I think, well, okay, so she's not going out, so she doesn't need her shoes. And I kind of try and guess what it is that she wants. You see, my memory isn't what it should be, but my eyesight is bang on. I can see the people sleeping in the back row, and you're doing well today. She's shaking her head. Nothing wrong with my eyesight. My eyesight is 20-20. It's looking for things I have a problem with. I don't see them. And this is because, growing up as a child, I had this OCD thing. I have to have absolutely everything perfectly structured, perfectly in order. I lived in an entirely two-dimensional world where everything was exactly where I knew it should be, everything was where I left it. Zoe doesn't quite follow this scheme. 
So when Zoe says, can you get my glasses off my bedside table, Zoe's bedside table is a one square foot surface of wood, but she can use that square foot for 36 linear meters of storage. It's like a giant three-dimensional game of Tetris up there. And I'm not used to it. I'm no good. I can see perfectly, but I'm no good at looking. So what happens after a brief look there, after a lot of distraction, after some forgetting, I then start to panic. And when we panic, we start looking in ludicrous places. I mean, I will look anywhere. I can't find it at the bedside table. Maybe it fell under the bed. Maybe it's in the airing cupboard. I check my car. I check Zoe's car. I drive to her parents' house in Norfolk. It's not there. I drive to her work. Three hours later, she comes out to find me. Darling, she says, I'm on my hands and knees underneath the shed with a torch. What are you doing? She asks. I'm looking for your glasses. And because love is patient and love is kind... My partially sighted wife, without her glasses, leads me upstairs. And she leads me to her bedside table. And there she moves a scrap of paper. And the glasses are where they have been all along. It's like a conjuring trick. I'm not sure how she does it. And disappointed once more in her life choices, she goes back downstairs and I put the house back together. This Thursday, if I'm honest with those 20 minutes, I will have exactly the same problem. Thursday is 1,440 minutes long. I'll have trouble finding 20 minutes to seek the Lord. Because as soon as I start seeking him, I get distracted. Isn't it amazing what comes into your mind as soon as you try to empty it to pray and seek the Lord? What fascinating things that were never there before that bubble up. What incredible priorities there are. These distractions come. These clutters come. These temporary parts of our lives can cram in and fill those 1,440 minutes and those 20 minutes will never come. I did the maths. It's 1.4% of my Thursday. But if I'm honest, I'll have trouble remembering. I'll have trouble not getting distracted. I'll have trouble fitting it in. And the problem is, if I don't do it, if we as a church don't seek God on Thursday, then we'll start seeking stuff in all the wrong places. That's what Paul says in these two passages today. What are the right places? What are the right virtues and the right attitudes that we are looking for as we seek God on Thursday? Paul highlights these three key words, faith, hope, and love. Now, if these words sound familiar, it's not just because this is a dead famous passage used at everybody's wedding. You've heard it before, over and over again. We heard the same thing in our second reading to the Thessalonians, and we'll come on to that later. He also wrote it to the church at Colossae, Colossians 1, verses 3 to 5. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel. He wrote it to the Ephesian church, Ephesians 1, Round about verse 15. For this reason, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. And I think there's a rebuke here. I think he's actually trying to coach the Ephesian church to the third one. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Four churches. 
Jesus doesn't talk about, sorry, Paul doesn't talk about their worship, he doesn't talk about their buildings, he doesn't talk about their money, he doesn't talk about their ministry, he doesn't talk about their leadership, he doesn't talk about their power, he doesn't talk about their influence. But in every letter he writes to the churches, he talks about their sincere faith, their genuine hope, and their authentic, sacrificial love. Because these, he writes, are virtues that can only come from God. These are the things that when people see them in the church will lift their eyes not towards us, but up towards him. And these are the things, Paul writes, that are enduring, that are eternal. Now, eternal doesn't just mean they last forever going that way. It means they've always been so. Eternity stretches out in both directions. These are the things that we can always have trust in because they have always been so, and so will they always be. These are things that will last. These are things that will remain. And so on Thursday, it is to those things that Paul commends us to lift our gaze, to strip away what's temporary, and to fix our eyes on what is eternal, faith, hope, and love. You know, when I'm preaching, I always try and have a little Google and find something that's topical. I have various places I look in the Christian church calendar, in the, in the ancient Jewish calendar. I look at what movies are coming out, what books are coming out, what sporting events are on, what cultural events are on. And I have to say that as I was looking and looking and looking, I could not find anything that was happening today. I should be flattered that there are so many people here this morning, but I can't because I know that you had literally nothing better to do today. This is probably the dullest day I've ever come across. So I got desperate, and I just put 22nd of May 2011 into Google. Does anyone know what the top thing is? If you just put 22nd of May 2011, nothing else, just searching the day, what came up was this, Judgment Day. In fact, sorry, what came up was that today was the day after Judgment Day. You might have seen this in the news this week. It was predicted in this book by a guy called Harold Camping. Not Campling, Camping. (laughs) Harold Camping wrote this book saying that time has an end, and that end was yesterday. Round about 6 p.m. our time uh, was Judgment Day, and we were all going to be lifted up to spend uh, eternity together with the saints, approximately 200 million of us. I was in New York two weeks ago. This group has 5,000 posters on giant billboards. Could I have F3 up on the screen? Shift F3. These posters are everywhere across the United States of America. Judgment Day, May 21st, 2011. So I'm preaching and preparing a sermon for May 22nd, 2011. And everywhere I drive, there are these giant posters with a biblical guarantee that this sermon was entirely unnecessary. So I thought, well, I either don't bother writing anything and then maybe look like a twit if he's wrong. And I particularly uh, started to actually confess something when I saw, by the way, that this book is a sequel to a book he wrote 25 years ago called 1994, question mark. You'll never guess what that book was about. That was saying that the world was going to end in 1994. So anyway, Harold Camping, if he manages it, because he's 90 years old, he's on for a trilogy. Uh, and uh, I can't wait to read the next one. If anyone wants that, well, it's a little bit late, but um, I'll leave that there. You can take it after the service. So I'm driving around looking at this sign, thinking, well, what can you possibly preach the day after Judgment Day? And these words from Paul came to me. See, it doesn't matter. We can still take, because they endure, because they remain, because these we can fix our... I would think we can probably lose that because it's distracting people. Um... We have a biblical guarantee, not that the world is going to end, but that these three things endure. Faith, hope, and love. So if we're seeking these things on Thursday, what will they look like? What is it that we're actually 
looking for, because when I'm searching, I need very specific clues if I'm not going to get distracted. If you've got your finger in it, just, uh, we're just going to look at verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 1. Because here Paul, more than anywhere else, just extends a little bit what it is he's talking about when he talks to these churches and he talks about faith, hope, and love. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 3. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Your work produced by faith. The word work there is a a tricky one. What it really means is your good works produced by faith, not your sort of ordinary everyday work, your fruits, your good work, those things that come out of your faith and trust in God. I guess it was what Charles was talking about when he sort of talked about standing on the promises, not sitting in the premises. You see, real faith takes action. Real faith gets involved. Jesus, wrote, uh, Jesus spoke in Matthew 5, In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. It is by our faith that our good deeds will shine before men, that we will point to God. In James chapter 2, there are uh, a number of verses that point to this same thing, about faith being active, not passive. Verse 17, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Verse 26, as the body is without the spirit, and the word for spirit is the same as the word for breath. So as the body is without breath, is dead. So faith without deeds is dead. Our faith, if it doesn't take action, if there are not works, good works produced by faith, then we're an empty shell. We're a dead thing. We're like a body with no breath. That's what we were, weren't we? If you go all the way back to Genesis, just dust taken from the ground and breathed into by the Spirit, by the breath of God. My pastor in the States has a, has a catchphrase. He says, faith is an active verb, not a passive noun. Faith does take action. Faith makes a difference. Faith is more than warm religious good intentions. It gets involved. And when we look at what Paul has to say about this church, it is by their good works that they have become a shining beacon. They have got involved, but it has not been easy. The church at Thessalonica is not dead, Paul says. Look at verse 7. The Lord's message rang out from you. Do you remember last week uh, we looked at this clanging cymbal? This sort of horrible, loud noise, but discordant, unpleasant sound. And yet the good works from this church ring out with a clear and a pure note, pointing people directly to the one in whose trust has been rested, in whose faith these good works are done, but it has not been easy. And so Paul lifts them up for their endurance inspired by hope. Good works are not easy, but the church he's writing to you we need to know a little bit more about. You see, the Thessalonian church had only been going a few months when this letter was written, and it hadn't had an easy start. It was started when Paul's Paul's second ministry journey took him into the area, and it was one of the strangest accounts you'll find in Acts. It started by what? A, A peasant slave girl, a businesswoman, and a Roman soldier. 
Immediately that they start, there are riots. The leadership of the church and Paul himself come under pressure. Paul, in fact, has fled and left. That's why he's writing. And the church has to endure the most incredible trials and suffering. They have no building. They have no money. They have no power. They have no influence. But Paul doesn't write about that. He writes about what? Their sincere faith and their enduring hope. This church has nothing, but it has hope. The enduring hope that they have is sufficient that they hang on, that they stay the course. And what happens, verse 7, and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and is it Asia? I don't know how you say that word. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. Because when the trials came, they endured. Because their faith was transparent, because it rang out with a clear sound, it became known everywhere. We must hang on. We must stay the course. Our endurance comes because we know that we have an eternal hope. And it is tough labor. I mean, if we look at 1 Corinthians 13, we've joked about it, we have it at weddings, but it's a pretty honest look at how difficult love is can be. The Bible pulls no punches. It doesn't say it's all going to be romance and flowers. Even those, love is patient. That's the headline. That means love works on a longer time scale than you and I probably want it to. Love is patient. Love endures. And the strongest word of all Paul uses here, talking about love. He says, your labor prompted by love. The word labor he uses here, when I looked up the translation of it, means literally, and Zoe will recognize this when it comes to love, strenuous, wearisome toil to the point of exhaustion. That's what we're talking about here, not some greetings card. We're talking about strenuous, wearisome toil to the point of exhaustion. That's what love is means. Faith does work, but love goes the extra mile. Faith is productive, but love is sacrificial. Love stays up all night against the odds to care for one who is sick. It works 80 hours a week to provide. Faith will take you so far. But you're not going to get a babysitter to stay up all night. But a mother will. I was watching a movie recently where they had this selfish character who wanted to have a baby. And when they asked her why she wanted to have a baby, she said that she heard that mothers, when the children got into trouble, could lift up cars. She said, I want to be strong like that, so I'm going to have a baby. It doesn't work like that. But I checked, and it is true. There's not like one story that's got exaggerated. If you Google it, there's loads of stories of mothers lifting cars off children, loads of them. And the explanation is that prompted by love, our body is able to cast off all that which normally protects us. You see, we're much stronger than we think we are, but our body has all of these different mechanisms in place that prevent us from doing things that would hurt us, that would damage us. But in a condition of incredible stress, if you love somebody enough, you're willing to throw all of that aside just to make sure that that person will be okay. When we talk about love, it's that kind of love we're talking about, that depth of passion that allows a mother to lift a car, that allows someone to run into a burning building, that lets someone lay down their life for someone they love. For God so loved the world. It's that love. When we say that, when we say, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, 
that we may not perish but have eternal life. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love never fails. And we have to be careful when we are seeking spiritual gifts and things within the church that we're not like that selfish person who wanted the strength to lift cars. Because spiritual gifts don't work like that. We don't seek superpowers just for the sake of having them, just for our own amusement or to be a spectacle to other people. That would be just like watching the world's strongest man on television. These gifts, genuine faith, sincere love and enduring hope only come, only come about in direct relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power and provision of God. That's why a mother can lift a car. That's why we see, as we travel through our lives of faith, the wind of spirit blowing in this place. Not that we, not that we may amaze people with a spectacle, but because genuine love, enduring hope, and sincere faith transform lives, lift barriers and limits from us, that miracles may be performed in this place. When I seek God on Thursday, 20 minutes may be sacrificial out of my temporarily busy schedule. I have 1,440 minutes, but if I'm honest, it'll be hard to find 20 when there won't be some other demand. But Paul says, these are the things that are eternal. All the rest is noise. When you look around you in this building, just label here what is temporary. These chairs, this building, these clothes, they will hopefully last the service, but these trousers are actually fairly old. That's all temporary. This will pass away. And when you're praying on Thursday, things will come in your mind, but be careful to label them. If they're temporary, label them with that. This will pass away. And some of those things will be painful, and many of those things will be real, but they are temporary, and label them for what they are. This will pass away. And in that way, on Thursday, I hope that we as a church can focus not on the noise that bubbles into our minds, not into all those distractions that come when we start seeking God, not into all those other areas that we may be tempted to explore, but that our mind will rest instead on what is eternal. Sincere faith, genuine hope, and authentic love. Paul has a little bit at the end about when maturity comes. I don't know if you've had children. I have been blessed with three. And when they're younger, when they're very, very young, they have no sense of time at all. Have you observed this? Children have to have everything now. I want that now. They have no concept at all of other people's needs, only their own. Basically, small children, and I don't mean to be rude because they don't know any different, are incredibly selfish, incredibly short-term, they have to have everything they want. They have to have it now. They know no other time scale. And Paul says here, basically, and I'm sorry if this is offensive to you, we live our whole lives like that. We, like small children, have no real concept of eternity, no real genuine understanding of time. And Paul says, that's fine, because until perfection comes, there's no way we could know. But we can try. We can understand that our lives are so limited by this short-term, short-time thinking 
that with a little effort we can lift our eyes instead from what is temporary and what obscures the eternal. So these three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these, writes Paul, is love. Why? Because love binds all three together. Our trust in God is prompted by that love. It is through love that we have the possibility of that enduring hope for God so loved the world. But more importantly, because love is what God is. And most importantly of all, because love wins. I'll leave you with these words from Rob Bell from a book that has some dodgy theology in it, so I can't recommend it to you. But it ends with a wonderful blessing. Love is what God is. Love is why Jesus came. And love is why he continues to come. May you experience this vast, expansive, infinite, indestructible love that has been yours all along. May you discover that this love is as wide as the sky and as small as the cracks in your heart that no one else knows about. And may you know, deep in your bones, that love endures, that love wins. So a bit of a challenge this week, and uh, I thought we'd finish with a song which puts us in the right uh, track and frame of mind. It's a big ask in many ways, uh, but I pray that you'll join uh, with me and uh, respond in this way. I will offer up my life.